This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest of my podcast this week is Martin Clokey, CEO of Raven AI. The gold standard that I always thought of for technology, and this is, you know, it's kind of adapted over time, was, you know, GPS for your car. So one of the things that, that GPS does is that it doesn't drive your car, it doesn't dominate your attention. Every once in a while, it gives you a little insight, and then based on that insight, you're way more effective. So this, there's, there's this idea yeah. where, you know, as humans, we are awesome at solving problems, we're awesome at collaborating with one another. Where technology and data can help is to sift through data to make sure that if we're standing in front of a problem, we're standing in front of the right problem and the most important problem. So I, I always saw that there was this opportunity for to combine what we are best at with what technology is best at. This is Martin. He's an experienced executive and an award-winning technology entrepreneur with a background in manufacturing, data science, IP, and operations management. He holds multiple patents and is a mechanical engineer graduate from McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. He's a problem solver, relentlessly resourceful, and always assuming something can be done. When he saw the massive investments in Industry 4.0 increase, but most companies failing to the benefits they aspire, he decided to found Raven AI. Raven is on a mission to help manufacturers accelerate continuous improvements, improve the service to their customers, and increase profits. How? By spotting opportunities and provide real-time guidance that empowers and engages manufacturing teams. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Martin to my podcast, we explore why many manufacturers have a false sense of what they think has happened versus what has actually happened. The result of this? They can't solve their most pressing problems because they can't pinpoint with accuracy what these actually are. Martin shares how he's solving this problem and what choices he has made on his journey to do so in a remarkable way. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that to succeed in creating momentum and successful adoption, we have to go at the speed of humans. Secondly, what it takes to sell your SaaS solution to people on the shop floor versus the boardroom. Thirdly, how creating remarkable software starts with people that care about what they're actually building and people that are empowered to make decisions. And fourthly, that people often think 
going small and incremental is easier than doing things that are big. The fact is, doing things big is far easier to get people on board and excited about the journey. So hey Martin, thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I mean, I got introduced to you through another client of mine where we were having a discussion around the manufacturing space and that's where your name came up or the name of of your company, Raven AI. And I started looking at the website, quickly the about, I always try to kind of figure out like what is the backstory, what's the vision, the mission. And that's where I got intrigued and uh, hence I invited you. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes just for the audience to get a little bit of a grasp around who you are, if you would have to describe yourself as an entrepreneur, what are the two or three characteristics that pop up? That's a good question. I think in general, you know, I'm a creator. You know, so my, back, my background prior to being an entrepreneur was I did work in manufacturing, but I worked in design. And I think I've always been very excited by the blank page. You know, this is a problem. There's no solution. Start from scratch. So I've always, I've always enjoyed starting from scratch. I think also I'm a pretty positive person where I always, you know, I think I always assume that something can be done. And then when it, when I, you know, often determine that it can't be done, I'm not discouraged. I can just, you know, rationalize why it wasn't and then move on to the next thing. So I think, and that sort of sense that, you know, pretty much anything can be done. It's a way to sort of work through, you know, work past some of the, the things that, that I think block others as entrepreneurs where they're nervous and, and maybe they, you know, do things incrementally because they can't, they don't think they can do things at a larger scale. So I sort of take for granted that everything's possible and then work through sort of an engineering process to figure out what is possible and then just adjust and adjust as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's a good, that's the right mindset. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, let, let's take that back to 2013 when you founded Raven AI. What is the big idea behind the company? What was the problem that you saw where you said this needs to be solved? Out of engineering school. So prior to graduating, I'd worked in telecom and I was kind of lined up for you know a career in high tech, but I got recruited by a blind manufacturing company in Montreal and pretty neat company called Blinds to Go. And one of the first roles I had was on the shop floor. And you know when I first got to the shop floor, my impression of what I was supposed to do there was completely different from, from what I actually had to do. So I, I sort of was thinking from my, you know, from McGill I was going to, you know, use my optimization, you know, use Excel and all this kind of stuff here. And what I realized pretty quickly is that the way to drive improvement on the shop floor is, is by going out and spending time with, with people on the shop floor and, and solving problems. So at some yeah. point in my you know, career at blinds to go I had 50 operators on the shop floor. And, and basically my, my system for driving improvement was to walk around and say good morning to everybody and ask them if I could do something. And if they asked me to do it, I'd do it. And then naturally... I'd also come up, you know, see problems. But one of the things that always struck me was that what I was doing was at the expense of anything I would do with data. So, you know, whereas in the first few weeks I was spending time with Excel, I transitioned pretty quickly to, you know, spending no time with data. And I always felt that there was a missing opportunity here in some ways to maximize the effectiveness of a supervisor's time in particular. And, you know, the gold standard that I always thought of for technology, and this is you know, it's kind of adapted over time was, you know, GPS for your car. So one of the things that that GPS does is that it doesn't drive your car. It doesn't dominate your attention. Every once in a while, it gives you a little insight. And then based on that insight, you're way more effective. So this, there's, there's this idea where, you know, as humans, we are awesome 
at solving problems. We're awesome at collaborating with one another. Where technology and data can help is to sift through data to make sure that if we're standing in front of a problem, we're standing in front of the right problem and the most important problem. So I, I always saw that there's this opportunity for to combine what we are best at with what technology is best at. So we're problem solvers. Technology is good at math. And some of us may convince ourselves that we're good at math. And, you know, I have a, I have a degree in engineering, which is basically a degree in math. We're not good at math. You know, <laughs> we're not good at taking in information. You know, they talk about, you know, big data. We can't, hide it. We, we can't handle teeny data. Our brains, like you cannot distract us. So that's why the bar for GPS in your car, it's like, you know, every once in a while, turn left in 200 meters. And it's like, oh, we turn left. Perfect. You know, every once in a while, little bits of high value insights. And that, that is the model that I'd always kind of envisioned for Raven. And, that, and that's one of the things, that frustration that I couldn't use data and work with my teams at the same time was the reason you know, we founded Raven. So you started the company or you saw that problem, but what is the opportunity if you get this right? On the shop floor in a manufacturing organization, you get these signals like go right, go left, just ahead of time. Well, just think about the opportunity of, you know, when you drive your car with and without GPS. So I'm from Montreal and I'm not, have you, have you driven around Montreal? No. Okay. It's a disaster, but I'm sure you can just, just pick a, like pick a disaster, you know, a, a city. So I, I, and I'm from Paris. Montreal. I used to, oh, there you go. And one of the things I used to do in Montreal, I played competitive ultimate Frisbee and, you know, used to drive around different parts of the city to get there on time and, and like, and the construction and the traffic. And I remember at some point, you know, when I first got GPS installed in my car, I remember going down this really strange route. I know I was trying to get to the South shore and it was taking me down all these like weird, you know, paths. And I didn't know where, and then at some point I pop up, I'm, I'm on a bridge and I didn't even know what bridge I was on. It was like, I think it was maybe the Jacques Cartier bridge. So it wasn't an unknown bridge, but the fact that, you know, I probably saved, you know, an hour in traffic because of that insight. Like I would never have had that in you know, a million years. Or, or once I was in Toronto driving with my, my wife's grandmother, and just driving around town and she says, Martin, how do you know the city so well? And I kind of chuckled to myself. She, she couldn't see well enough to see that I had GPS there. But that's, that's the idea here. How can, you, how can you take technology and make it where we can perform at a much higher level? It's almost you know, democratizing you know, excellence, making it so that you know, I, I can have, as like somebody who has bad sense of direction, I can be as good at navigating traffic or better than a taxi driver. Yeah, well, that's that's correct. And yeah, typically, what you see, what, yeah, what do you see with customers that start this? Well, the before and after. Is it only about cost savings? Is it also about competitive advantage? Is it about more volumes, being able to respond faster to market changes? I think you know the driver for investing in technology and manufacturing. There's usually two of them. It's one, keep up with demand, and yeah. two, reduce cost. I think those are both things that you know. They, they both of those happen if you start getting rid of waste. You know, in manufacturing, we can get to this later here, but one of the things is that I think there's a false, some manufacturers have a false sense of, you know, what they know and what they don't know. You know, one of the biggest challenges in all, all businesses is getting accurate enough data to know what's happening. And that's not data that's describing, you know, what's the result of what's happened. There's a difference between the result of what's happened and what's actually happened. So the result of what's happened is I spent this amount of money, I produced this amount of stuff, and it was, you know, 90% of it was on time. That's the result of what happened. What actually happened is often much trickier to get. And manufacturers, many of them manage based on metrics which capture the result of what's happened. 
you know, so these summary metrics that talk about, you know, I, I had an OEE of, you know, 60%, and this is why this happened. So in order to improve, and I mentioned earlier, humans are awesome problem solvers, but yeah. in order to solve, a, solve the right problem, you need to point them in the direction of that right problem. You know, to work on the right things, you need to know the facts. You yeah. need to know what's happened. And that data set that describes what happens is hard to get. And, and, and that's really the, the core of the focus of our business is really how do you establish exactly what has happened, the good things and the bad things, so that you can take you know, the people who are at your plants, the supervisors, the operators, the technicians, the engineers, and get them to stand in front of the most important problem, because chances yeah. are they'll be able to fix it. Let me make a small interruption here. Martin just explained the essence of what the solution is all about and how it creates defensible differentiation by focusing on the hard things that nobody addresses, the data that is hard to get. By taking this different approach, they're able to create a shift in value, not by helping people solve any problem, but the right problem. And that's where manufacturers gain their advantage. It's a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence and then create new value possibilities. And this is where they create something valuable and highly desirable. And you can master these traits as well. I got various options for you to start. Just go to valueinspiration.com to learn about the masterminds and the work streams to put the fundamental building blocks in place to fast track the growth of your software business. And as you are there, don't forget to grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect, to start sparking new inspirations in the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. Yeah, I mean, on your website, you talk about know the exact cause of the production losses. And that goes back a number of steps in the process rather than just looking at the step where it, where it actually went wrong. But even just the step that went wrong. So like, you know, for many of our clients, the things that are slowing them down are as mundane as they're spending too much time waiting for a resource to arrive. So if you were to task the machine and look at the machine codes, it would say, you know, fault code number 15. But why did it have fault code number 15? Because somebody was waiting for 10 minutes for somebody to move the pallet that was stuck in front of the machine. We have many clients that are having issues where changeovers, right? So they're, they're trying to set up a machine for the next process. And three out of 10 of their operators, you know, take twice as long. So, but if you look at the result of what's happened, you just see, okay, at the end of the day, we performed at 80%, whatever that means. But they don't see that the root cause of that was those three out of 10 operators were short on changeovers. So once you know the facts right now, given that the biggest challenge is actually knowing the facts, the kinds of things that, you know, manufacturers need to work on to improve typically are things that they can wrap their heads around relatively easily. You know, if you have an issue where you're waiting for resources, you know, if the team knows that the biggest thing that's stopping them from addressing an issue with waiting for one of our Danaher plants had that issue they can absolutely fix it. The problem is they don't know that that's the most important problem. True. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only by knowing that you get to get, get started to work on that. Very interesting. And I mean, from my poor experience from manufacturing, I do know that this is a big problem. That's another thing. So then you started to kind of create a solution. I'm always interested to understand like what happened on that journey. And going back to kind of Steve Jobs, he was always talking about innovation is not about what you say yes to, but what you say no to. First of all, what did you do when you were looking at the market at the, at the solutions available and you came up with the direction that you were going to take with Raven? What did you do different? Okay, so maybe I'll sort of describe how the first thing I did when I wanted to found Raven was, and so my background is in manufacturing. I did 
mechanical design, optimal mechanical design. I have, I have patents, you know, that are used in point of care genetic testing. So my background is in hardware, software, technology development. So the first thing that I, I wanted to do was not do any of that. So what I, before even developing anything, I found this company that did security camera systems. And then I found another company that did dashboards and I wanted the security camera company to, to point the camera at a machine. And then I wanted the dashboard company to you know, tell me if it was running or not. And they both said no. Because I first off, based on my previous comment there, like I thought everything's possible. Of course, they're going to want to do it. So they both said, oh, you should have talked to me two years ago. So whatever. So then I had to, you know, I basically sort of built the system. We started building the system after they said, they said no to supporting me there. But really, I think the systems that were out there, there what I found was there's a lot of pieces and there's a lot of companies selling pieces. And I wasn't interested in a piece. I was interested in GPS for supervisors. I was interested in exactly what I would have wanted when I was on the shop floor at Lines to Go in Montreal. And I think there's a point where, you know, companies can spend a lot of time looking at what else is out there. And every time I, I look back to what's out there, I see people trying to grab a piece of the, of the puzzle. True. And I find it hard as an engineer to wrap my head around the path to value. Because at the end of the day, if I'm not able to provide that real-time guidance to somebody that allows for them to solve that problem more quickly, I'm having to hope. And I don't like to sort of like give up the control and make, I want to know that it's going to deliver, you know, deliver returns Yeah. as an engineer. Like that's how you design a control system. And there's, there's a point in my career where I was designing thermal control systems where it was very much around hitting that exact, you know, you know, I was trying to denature DNA. So DNA denatures at 95 degrees Celsius. You can't, mess up. You need to be at that control point. So I think, you know, the idea of controlling, of closing the loop always made sense to me intuitively. And because of that, you know, one needed to make sure to, you know, go all the way from capturing the data, extracting that insight and actually guiding that action. And if you, if you don't do all three of them, you're going to be relying on somebody else. And typically when you rely on somebody else in that kind of equation, you're going to be relying on humans to interpret data. And we are not good at interpreting data. This is so true. And that's exactly what I, what I also see. You know, it's everybody's working on a particular piece and the automation part of that where the augmentation is completely lost. That's where a lot of value is coming from. And that's by, come, by connecting all the dots here. So that's what you did. Fascinating. I'd like to go back to a question or actually a statement that Steve Jobs always made, which is it's not a, innovation is not about what you say yes to, but what you said no to. So how would you apply that to, to your business? There's two sides to answer that question. So first. As far as type of things, I think prior to founding the company, I was running a consulting firm, consulting, you know, developing production lines and technology and all that. And one of the things that we decided early on was that we would not, we would avoid consulting revenue at all costs. Yeah. You know, one of the challenges is that consulting revenue is a really easy way to generate revenue and grow the team here. But, you know, what happens is that you make these bespoke solutions that potentially point you away from that solution, that universal solution that can be applied to all manufacturers. So that, that's one thing that, you know, decision we made early on consciously. It's so dangerous. I don't know how companies combine that effectively or, you know, yeah. companies who end up being, you know, service companies that are, you know, made to look like product companies. But, you know, for us, we've always stayed away from, you know, making service a primary driver for our business. And that's not to say that we aren't, open to collaborating, but when we do provide, you know, on-site service, 
you know, it's part of our way to learn from our clients. Like one of the things that's worked well for our business is the fact that we have expertise on the technology side, but we also have a bunch of experience actually managing manufacturing. So our, our chief strategy officer was president and CEO for a you know billion dollar publicly traded tier one auto parts manufacturer. So we actually under, we actually know what it looks like when things are being productive on the shop floor. So we take that knowledge, but then we don't try and charge, you know, 40K a month for consulting services. So that was one thing here from a, from a strategy perspective that we chose to do. Good point. Good point. That's also its mindset, you know, and I see companies that are really kind of sticking into the service mindset because, you know, it's also bringing, well, bringing the money, it's bringing the revenue, but they never get, get disconnected from it anymore. I see the opposite side where they say, every time we get a question or we have an issue, we make sure it never happens again. We automate it out of existence. And I've also been in a company whereby the services revenue was a really, really big component and it was lucrative. And even it stopped us from working with partners because we couldn't let go of the, of the implementation revenue ourselves. So it's, it can really block your growth. And that's, that's the wise decision to make that early on in the process. So kind of bringing the, the solution to market then, did it end up going exactly as you wanted or did, it, did you see surprising effects that you didn't anticipate? Was there anything that's, that went different? Yeah, I think, and just we collaborate with consultancies. So, you know, we collaborate with Boston Consulting Group and Deloitte. And I think that combination is just fantastic because at some point, exactly, you know, when it comes to digital transformation, the technology is the easy part. The hard part is change management. You know, us, true, us, true. us humans are, are not good at taking in data. We also don't like change. So true. But I think that realization that the technology part of the was in some ways that the easiest part was one that became more and more evident as we sort of grew as a company. You know, we were fortunate to always have, you know, we'll be working with, you know, we've been working with Danaher for a long time, you know, fantastic, you know, manufacturing organization. But yeah, recognizing the fact that you can turn on technology, you know, with a switch, but, but people don't work that way. And True. people need to understand at every step in the process. So I think that's something yeah. that has guided our product development so that, you know, the way that we turn the product on is incremental so that you can get operators on the shop floor and supervisors to actually understand it every step in the way. What's interesting is if you go on LinkedIn, which you should go, you should be on, on LinkedIn, but if somebody posts a picture of a whiteboard in manufacturing, yeah. it, it's, it's amazing how much activity that triggers. So you have all of the, the new school dashboard companies going like, what are you guys doing with a whiteboard? It's like, that's the worst thing. What are you guys stuck in the eighties? And then you have all the, yeah. the old school saying like, no, this stuff works. And the reality is both groups are absolutely correct, but what they're missing sure isn't the actual photo. They're not missing that instant of the photo. They're missing the progression that it took to get to that point. So to get to the point from no whiteboard to whiteboard, one of the good things with whiteboards, everybody understands. So you go on the yeah. shop floor, somebody starts drawing lines and say, okay, so now when, when we do a good thing, it's green. And when we do a bad thing, it's red. Like they all get it. So the fact that there's this natural onboarding process because it's tactile, it's manual, means that people, the operators are engaged and they get it. So if you just take a dashboard and slam it on the shop floor and flick it on, you've missed out on that engagement. So for us on the technology side, let's not skip on the engagement side. Let's make it so that the early versions are so simple that the operators are going, okay, so now I want you to add this feature because it's, I want more, I want to be able to, you know, use this tool 
to be more descriptive about the things that are causing me problems. So I think that's, that's the, you know, I think as humans, we often see things as snapshots and we don't see things as they progress over time. And that progression over time, we need to go at the speed of humans because technology will always be faster. Good point. Yeah. I like that speed of humans. I mean, at the end, that is what it's all about. Don't forget there's a human in the loop and that they have to start that's not going to change. With. And there's, there's going to be a human in the loop for a long time because like there's... Exactly, there's, uh... yeah. And in many, in many cases, you get a better result by kind of pulling the two together. A lot of people think that technology, of course, like your, your example in the beginning, like technology is better at mathematics. Yes. Okay. But, and... but just, just, think about, just think about what your eye can do compared to like some people, like some people think that data in an Excel file is higher quality than data from your two eyes. That's shocking. So like this little, okay, so what that data in the cell can do is you can say, okay, you should go and look at this thing. So data, like on the technology side, it's quite coarse compared to what we were able to do. And one of the things we talked about, you know, the benefits to manufacture, there's, you you can deliver on time or you can reduce costs. And a lot of those are linked to, you know, a bunch of wastes that are sort of are typically associated with manufacturing, like, you know, poor quality transportation. The biggest waste right now is underutilized resources. And this is like, it's one of the categories of waste. If you think about the capability of each human that's standing on the shop floor, it's massively underutilized because they're having to do things that they're not that good at. And that's why that idea of, you know, combining technology with humans, allowing humans to do more of what they're good at you know, there's, there's going to be massive increases in, in productivity. Exactly. And what it will look like, I don't know if we can even tell what it will look like because it, it'll naturally be an evolution. It won't look the way it what did in the past. And maybe to your point about, you know, the shipping and all that, you know, it could be that the future of manufacturing is one where you can have small regional manufacturing plants where you don't need to ship stuff around the world because you're no longer having to, you know, have factories with 300 people and thousands of machines. But yeah, I think the potential for technology and humans together is, is huge. And it, it's, yeah. it's not as much of a battle as, as a lot of people make it out to be. Uh, that's true. I completely agree with that. It's, yeah, I mean, that's why I started this podcast in the first place. It's like the magic that we can do when technology and people blend in the right way. That's where we haven't seen, we are just scratching the surface. So interesting that you're doing this. So bringing this to market, what have you learned selling this? I mean, do people see this as revolutionary? Do they see this... Do they trust it? What have you learned in the early adoption phase of this? I think in some ways, rather if you know, technology can help, ultimately companies are successful based on their ability to improve in general. And I think there's been a lot of, you know, a, lot, a lot of businesses have sold technology by pitching their technology as kind of a cure-all. And I think the reality, and this is, you know, I experienced this in the shop floor, the reality is that you know, the success of a company is related to its culture of continuous improvement. It's related very closely to its ability to solve problems quickly. And that work quickly is really important here. As a company, you don't present that, you know, you are the solution. The solution is to improve, increase the speed of improvement. And then to demonstrate that, you know, you're a tool that can be deployed as part of their continuous improvement culture and help them solve problems more quickly. In some ways, the words that are used to describe that aren't the typical buzzwords that, you know, we would see on social media. And, you know, the the buzzwords are useful for the first 
presentations in the boardroom and all that. But at some point when you get to the shop floor, people in good manufacturing plants are very practical and they want to see the value and they don't care what it's called. So I, I think at some point here, so ensuring that the way that our technology, you know, demonstrates the value that we can provide quickly, you know, is a really important part and not just at the, you know, the boardroom level, demonstrating to operators on the shop floor that, you know, they're using this technology is actually better for them because what it does is it makes sure that their supervisor, their maintenance tech, their managers are actually fixing the right problems. So in some ways, the operators on the shop floor, you know, their interaction with the system has to be returned with something. And that return has to be fixed problems that they're helping to identify. Yeah. That is, again, measured in all their, on the KPIs that they are going after. Interesting. I wrote a book called The Remarkable Effect. Not sure whether you've seen that, but it's about the 10 traits that defines or that creates a remarkable software business. You've been in, well, running this business since 13, so about eight years right now. I'm always interested to hear your well perspective from my guest about what it takes to create a company that people keep talking about. So what's your view on that? Are you asking from a marketing perspective or are you asking from a, like a from, product from, from your role. I mean, what are you steering on so that your business will be a business today and in five years' time that people keep talking about? Okay, but do you mean longevity? Because keep talking about, I guess I'm sort of interpreting that as sort of a, more of a buzz you know, marketing, which at some point, as I mentioned before, I've only been you know, creating little bits of buzz for the last six months. But at some point, the foundation of the business has to be, has to be the quality of the yeah. product and the value that that product delivers, right? Everything exactly. else is, is creating awareness about that product. I think as a software company, software has to be at the core. We have to recognize that you know, our business is dependent on you know, our team's ability to develop awesome software. And, and, the way, and that comes from them caring about it, from them understanding what we're trying to do here. So creating that healthy and positive software culture is, is extremely important. And my background isn't in software. So I've done some software as an engineer, but so I think that's something that to be a successful software business, you have to have a very good, healthy culture in your software and engineering teams. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I like that word that you use, they're caring about it. And that is really having, yeah, indeed, really kind of embracing yourself in what's going on at your customer side and what is what are the problems that they are facing on a day-to-day basis and solving that, right? Yeah, I think caring is, I don't know if caring necessarily needs to be that specific. You know, somebody who's developing software, caring about what they build, that may not be because they're empathizing with a customer experience, you know, at some points, but that still means that they care. And I think even using like the software, you know, you could create software, you know, like Jira to keep track of tickets and then use it as an enforcement tool to get people to complete tickets. And if you contrast that with a culture where, the people developing the technology care about what they're building, that is way more effective at creating amazing software than having this command and control system where you're, you know, simply ensuring that the right number of tickets is done in the right time. Yeah. And I think that approach where if you can create engagements amongst your team, you know, empower them to make decisions and to, you know, like that formula works in, in all settings. Yes. And in some ways that almost describes, you know, kind of the way that we see technology in the manufacturing plants. There's technology that you know, enables leadership to have, you know, command and control where they can see everybody's production in every second of the day, or there's a tool that empowers frontline workers 
to help direct their organization to solve the most important problems that they see. So there are two approaches, the top down or the bottom up and the bottom up one, which is supported by leadership, but the bottom up one, if you can create engagement there, that's how you create, you know, a continuous improvement culture that will be successful with or without technology. It's culture indeed. Yeah. And well, well, the other way is culture as well. I completely get your point. The bottom up part is around is really where people care about solving things to make the whole thing better rather than just following orders and say, okay, it's five o'clock. I have to go home. Yeah. Fascinating. And I completely agree with that. So kind of on your journey, what has been the biggest obstacle so far that you had to overcome and how did you go about it? I think you know, as organizations grow, there's a point where founders stop doing everything. And, and that happens kind of in step in step functions. And, you know, that's often, if you are able to found a company, you're able to do a lot of different things semi-effectively and do it without the typical supports that somebody would need, you know, if they were doing it as an assignment, which is amazing to go zero to a half, or I don't know how, how far. So there's a point where to, you know, reach escape velocity, you need to grow outgrow, you know, the contributions of the founders. And that's not to say that the the founders are less involved, but that involvement changes. So my co-founder, Braden and I, he's our chief technology officer, you know, between the two of us, we could probably cover off, you know, a a large portion of what we do at the company. And some of these things that we're covering off, we're just, we're barely covering it off. Right. So like we're both, both engineers, you know, he's on the software side. I'm on the, I guess now on the sales side, but I think the most exciting thing for our organization was seeing the impact of bringing in amazing talent, amazing leadership, and, you know, giving them the opportunity to really, you know, take our company to, you know, new levels. And we benefit on our team, our chief strategy officer, as I mentioned, he was president and CEO of a billion dollar publicly traded company. And he transformed, you know, the company that he worked for many years ago. But I think like, you know, having somebody on the team who's able to sort of show us the power of you know, bringing in talented leaders and then giving and then enabling them to, you know, take the company even further has been really exciting. And it's kind of, you know, you're no longer pulling the boat, the boat's going super fast, and you're just trying to take the part that you have, that's your responsibility and keep the good times going. So that's been an exciting transition. And I think it's something that, you know, most companies have to see because, you know, at some point you have to let go of the reins. And it's always, it's exciting to see when you let go of the reins that things are going even better. Well, that's, of course, hopefully so. But if you have the right people around you, that's definitely the case. And I think it also goes back to this whole story of empowerment and believing in people and allowing them to make a couple of mistakes rather than just telling them how to do it. What are you most proud of achieving so far? I think the word achievement is like, I'm, I'm proud of what the company has achieved. But right now, I, I would say that, you know, to basically be, you know, growing so quickly, but in a way that just feels so good internally and, you know, to be serving so many manufacturers and, and bringing, like, we've grown the team. 50% since January. I'm not even sure now. It's like every week there's, there's more people. And, and it's just like the feeling, the feeling amongst our team, like there's a lot of work. It's neat to be, you know, working. I would even say now it's neat to be working for an organization that feels the way it does. It's always, it's nice to be successful and it's nice to grow. And I think, yeah, and I would say I'm proud of what the company has achieved. Because I wouldn't want to say that it's what, you know, what I've achieved because I've contributed to it now. So I'm, I'm on the boat along with the rest of the team. True. And it's neat to be on the ride. And it's neat to see us going faster and faster and faster. Because the problem as, you know, as we saw it when we founded the company is, is still there. We're Go way further ahead with regards to how, you know, how to solve it now. Plus, you know, the, with the pandemic, there's this newfound interest in 
you know, changing how people use technology at, at the plants, right? So it's like, there's a, there's a perfect storm, you know, for industry for it happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's a digitalization roadmap or journey has really shrunk and accelerated during COVID and it hasn't stopped yet. I think it's just accelerating even further the, right now. The adoption, so the acceleration of adoption, that isn't the acceleration yeah. of value from the adoption. And that's the one thing here where this time around, you know, people need to see the returns because without that, their businesses are going to struggle. Like right now, like they're, they're not able to hire in manufacturing and yeah. they actually need to see that improvement. So it's neat. So the investment is cool. So, you know, when companies sell technology, fantastic, but the longevity will depend on how good, you know, the technology is like at some point, if you and I spent some money on GPS for our cars and it didn't work, we would turn it off. We would, you know, exactly. cut off the subscription, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. Second time you sent me in this road and it's in the dead end roads. Yeah. yeah. From all the lessons that you learned, almost final question, like the tidbits of wisdom, as you call them, what will be a do and what will be a don't if you were to give advice to people that aspire to be technology CEO like you are? I think it's hard to say do or don't, but I think being optimistic and practical at the same time is an important combination. I think, you know, it has to be the combination of two of them. Because if you're optimistic and not practical, then you're going to start doing stuff that won't be successful. But that just the positivity is something that I know I share with my co-founder. And that's not to say that things always go well, but I think that general positivity combined with, in some ways, when there's uncertainty, it's almost like we get a buzz out of uncertainty. I would say the do is you, you need to have, find that, that combination of being optimistic and, and practical because without those two, you'll either get demotivated and not do it or get super motivated and crash into a wall. So you need to find a way to dial those two in a way that will get you to success. I think the other thing is that People often think that doing things that are smaller and incremental is easier than doing things that are bigger. So one of the things that if you choose to do something big, it's easier to get people on board and excited about your journey. And I think it's it, like, it's something that you see many founders do. They want to, okay, well, I'm just going to do this incremental thing and then add on that next thing. So in some ways as an entrepreneur, you know, there's the idea of a horse before cart and cart before horse doing yeah. things backwards as an entrepreneur is often an effective way to test hypotheses and create excitement. And at some point, you, you know, how people respond to your idea, how people respond to your business is really important early on. So yeah, the two things I would say, dial you know, the optimism, practical, practicality dials. But the other one is don't be afraid to think big and then sure. test your hypothesis by telling your story. And the story really matters. At the core, you know, as a CEO, you need to be able to tell a compelling story. And that's almost yep. your most important job. And you tell it in different settings to different people, but you know, storytelling is incredibly important. Love the way you say that because it's, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of that as well. And I believe that's super, super valuable and often something that we easily forget. So what's next for you? Where do you want to be in 12 months time from here? I am not particularly motivated. I'm motivated by real-time improvement, real-time speed. And I don't like to look out too far. I don't, you know, I look back if it's useful. So at some point, you know, 12 months, it'll be different. To, you know, it'll be different because we're improving, you know, to, to establish a mile marker that's not personally in my mental model. I like to improve quickly and we are doing that. And I like to go even faster. So, you know, you know like just like the product that you're selling in on the show floor. Without question. You know, it's like, put your, put your head down when you're, when you're biking, like a biking hundred K, just put your head down. Put your head down, you know, look at, maybe look at the real-time speed and trust the plan and go. Exactly. Oh, fascinating. Thank you very much for the story that you've been sharing here. 
the lessons that you've learned. I like a number of the way you approach it, approach thing as an engineer, being a creator, I like your storyline around being optimistic and practical at the same time, just to move it forward. And yeah, I completely agree with the, the part around thinking big and having that vision. So where can people go to find out more about the com- your company, Raven.ai? Raven AI. Right. Well, go to the internet, Raven.ai. You can also check us out on LinkedIn. Where can they connect to you and say hi? Oh, LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, that's where I hang out. Most effective way. So Martin Cloak on LinkedIn. And I respond to 100% of people that reach out to me. Good. Well, thank you very much. Good luck with the next step in the growth of the company. I mean, just the fact that you've been growing 50% in January is massive. Good luck with that. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Martin. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Martin Clokey, CEO of Raven AI. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.